Hello again. I'm Jim Bartlett. Welcome back to my podcast, which is a companion to my main website. The hits just keep on coming. This episode, which is going to skip around from decade to decade and radio job to radio job, is called Random Radio Tales. In the late 80s and early 90s, I lived and worked in a couple of towns with long histories of minor league and semi-pro baseball. I was still a serious baseball fan then, so we went to the park quite a bit. At that time, the game was the main attraction. This was years before minor league teams in all sports figured out that added attractions would bring out more fans than the game alone. Today, we've reached the point at which the games by themselves are fairly far down the list of things that brings a family to the park. But 30 years ago, that hadn't happened yet. Back then, the sorts of promotions that were offered at minor league baseball parks hadn't changed much in years. For example, post-game fireworks on the 4th of July. That always guaranteed a big crowd, and we spent several Independence Days in ballparks. One year, the fireworks accidentally started in the top of the ninth inning, and I'll never forget the sight of the catcher standing in front of home plate, full regalia on, his mask pushed back on his head, looking up at the show. On other nights, we saw Max Patkin, the clown prince of baseball, and the San Diego chicken. And one night, the local minor league team brought the original Lone Ranger, Clayton Moore, to the park. My radio station was broadcasting the team's games then, and the team wanted somebody from the station to introduce him. Honesty compels me to report that I was not especially impressed by this honor. At that time, it had been maybe 35 years since the Lone Ranger ended its regular run on TV, and probably 20 or more since it disappeared from syndication. Since that time, a whole generation had grown up with the Lone Ranger as, at best, a Jungian archetype. One of those things everybody just seems to know without knowing why they know it. It was hard for me, then in my early 30s, to imagine that very many people under the age of 60 would be all that impressed by Clayton Moore either. I was even less enthusiastic after I heard that, because of a trademark restriction or intellectual property laws or something like that, Clayton Moore could not call himself the Lone Ranger. There was specific wording I had to use to introduce him. Neither could he use the familiar Lone Ranger theme song or wear the exact costume and mask. Oh yeah, this is going to be great, I thought. But we were the team's radio flagship station and they asked us to be there, so I went. Now, I'm standing out behind home plate as the stadium begins to fill up. I can tell that it's not going to be much bigger than a normal crowd, which seems to confirm my opinion about the Lone Ranger's drawing power in the 1990s. At the appointed moment, I walk out behind home plate, grab the mic, and do the usual DJ shtick. My name, the call letters, welcome to the park, and so on. I look toward the third base dugout where Moore is supposed to appear, and I say whatever I am contractually obligated to say, ending with the words, Clayton Moore. The PA blares a song that sounds very much like the original Lone Ranger theme, and out he comes. A cowboy-looking suit, a hat, a mask, six-shooter on his hip, And suddenly, I am all in on the illusion. I am no longer the jaded local DJ who wonders what all the fuss is about. All I can think is, holy shit, it's the Lone Ranger. I do not remember if he walked like the 77-year-old man he was. All I saw was the greatest of all Western heroes striding toward me and putting out his hand to shake mine. Holy shit, it's the Lone Ranger. Like other fans, I received an autographed photo of Moore in his costume that night. It hung in my office at the radio station until the day I left, and in one of the boxes of stuff we've hauled from place to place in all the years since, it's still there. Did I mention I shook the Lone Ranger's hand? On the subject of legends, WGN in Chicago is one of America's legendary radio stations, a Midwestern powerhouse for nearly a hundred years. It's been home to enough famous radio names to fill an entire Hall of Fame. 
One day in the mid-90s, Ann came home from work all excited. She was a dedicated WGN listener then, and she'd heard the afternoon guy say that his show needed a new producer. He also said that if you knew anything about radio, you should apply. Ha ha, very funny. We lived near Davenport, Iowa at the time, in the region known as the Quad Cities, and I was job hunting. And because a man's got to know his limitations, I know there is no way I am going to get a producer's job at WGN. Nevertheless, just to please my beloved, I print off my resume, cobble together a flippant cover letter, stuff in an air check tape, put the package in the mail, and forget all about it. One day a few weeks later, my brother is in town. Ann's gone to work, and he and I are lingering over the remains of breakfast when the phone rings. I answer it, and I'll be damned if it isn't WGN. We got your package, a guy says. We don't think you're right for the producer's job, but we always like to talk to people we think have something to offer. If you're going to be in Chicago anytime soon, let me know and we'll set something up. Holy shit! I mumble something, hang up the phone, and stand there in the dining room with a dumbstruck look on my face. My brother sees the look and says, who died? When my reason returns, I say to him, I think I just got the call. Capital T, capital C, the call, the summons, the invitation to a potential job at the greatest radio station on earth. Needless to say, I arranged to be in Chicago in fairly short order. On that day, I find myself in the heart of Chicago's loop, walking into the historic Tribune Tower, going into the WGN lobby and telling the receptionist I'm there for an interview. I meet the assistant program director, whose name was Randy. At least I think his name was Randy. I can't remember now, and given my mental state at that moment, I'm not sure I could remember it then either. Randy gives me a tour of the station, the on-air studios, the newsroom, the rows of offices, and eventually we sit down in a conference room to talk. He's kind enough to ask me about my career and my future plans, but it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly that this is a courtesy interview. The current opening they have is for a production assistant, a job that pays $10,000 a year. He says, I doubt you're interested in that. We realize it doesn't pay very much, but we don't have to pay very much because this is a place people want to work. He doesn't say this in an unpleasant or egotistical fashion, but as something both of us know to be the truth. After maybe 45 minutes, we part. Randy escorts me back to the lobby, and I head for the door of the Tribune Tower. But as I am walking through this portal to obscurity back in Iowa, a man named Jack Rosenberg is walking in. He was once a very famous name among Chicago broadcasters. He spent many years alongside sportscaster Jack Brickhouse producing Bears and Cubs broadcasts on WGN radio and television. At this time, in the mid-90s, he was the radio sports director. I'd met Jack Rosenberg a year or two before, when the Tribune Company, owners of WGN, hosted a weekend event for its affiliate stations. I see a glimmer of recognition as our eyes meet. He stops. I stop. I introduce myself. What brings you to Chicago, he asks, his voice full of that distinctive windy city gravel. I interviewed for a production assistant's job, I say. Looking for a job, are you? If you're not in a hurry, why don't you come back to my office? Holy shit! A moment later, we're in Rosenberg's office. He asks about my job search. You're in Davenport, right? He picks up the telephone and calls WOC, the Tribune affiliate in Davenport, and asks for the program director. Bob, Jack Rosenberg, WGN. I've got a fine young man in my office, name of Jim Bartlett, lives in the Quad Cities, up here for a job interview. We haven't got anything for him, but I'd consider it a personal favor if you could do something for him there. Across the desk from Jack, about 75% of me is remaining cool. The other 25% is freaking the fuck out. As I try to stay in the chair and not float up to the ceiling, I look down at Rosenberg's desk where I notice the stapler. A label maker label on it says Vince Lloyd. 
I had grown from a boy to a man with Vince Lloyd in my ear every summer because he spent 23 years as radio play-by-play man for the Cubs. He had long since retired by then, but his stapler played on. That this is a thing I would notice captures the surreality of the whole morning. I don't know how long I was in Jack's office. Maybe 15 minutes, maybe an hour, maybe a day and a half. Finally, he escorts me back to the lobby, bids me good luck, and says, if you're ever going to be back in town and I can fix you up with some Cubs tickets, you just let me know. I have no idea how I managed to find my car, let alone navigate it out to the tollway or drive it back to Iowa. As it turned out, the program director at WOC didn't do Jack the personal favor he asked for, but he didn't have to. WGN had already done me a much bigger favor. The day was a validation. I wouldn't have gone to WGN at all if they hadn't considered me at least theoretically worthy of a job there. To quote Bill Murray and Caddyshack, I've got that going for me, which is nice. Okay, new story. When a radio station gets new management, smart people update their resumes and air check tapes. It's the nature of the business. You never know if you're going to survive the transition. But at one place I worked, the new general manager was like a dream. He treated the on-air staff with great respect. He once told me I was the greatest commercial production guy he'd ever had. We all loved him. But he proved to be not quite so great after all, because he hired the one man in broadcasting I would not save from drowning if he were in a puddle at my feet. Just as every NFL general manager wants a coach of his own choosing, our new general manager wanted to hire a program director of his own. So we moved our current program director to a regular DJ gig and hired his guy. His guy had worked in our town before he left for a major market, we were told. He had lots of great ideas, we were told. And since it was our extremely likable new general manager who was bringing him in, we believed it would be okay. His last gig had been somewhere out east. Ann was working for an ad agency at that time, and she knew people in the market where he'd been. So she made a couple of calls, but discovered that people were strangely reluctant to talk about the guy. When she told them he was going to be her husband's new boss, they said things like, Oh, long pause, and they would say no more. During his first days in town, the guy talked a good game, but as days unfolded, we realized it was just talk. He managed in a way familiar to anyone who's ever had a bad boss— If you can't be dazzle him with brilliance, baffle him with bullshit. He tweaked the station's format in ways that made little sense to us despite his elaborate explanations, and the station's sound suffered. He fired the ex-program director and the night jock almost immediately and replaced them with guys he had known during his earlier years in town. That was their main qualification, by the way. It certainly wasn't talent. And once they were in the building, the rest of us were on our way out, although we didn't know it yet. One Saturday afternoon, I was scheduled for back-to-back shifts with the only female jock on the staff. We'll call her Carla, because that is not her name. Carla was on 10 to 2, and I was on 2 to 6. At 5.30, the guy was in his office. There was only one reason why he'd be there on a Saturday, and I knew it. So I ended my last break on the air by saying, Ladies and gentlemen, it has been a pleasure. And I walked out of the studio to the words, Jim, can I see you for a minute? I got the usual speech in the tone familiar to radio jocks everywhere, the one about how you've done good work for us, but we're going in another direction and we've got to let you go, and we're really sorry. Which, of course, was more bullshit. I learned the next day that Carla had gotten fired at about the same time on her answering machine. He could have fired both of us in person at 2 o'clock, but then he would have had to work my shift until 6, and he wouldn't. Ann's boss at the ad agency was the wife of one of my station's sales reps, They were our closest friends. As it turned out, after I got off the air that night, I was supposed to meet Ann at an ad agency party. When I got there, my former colleague was waiting for me outside the venue, calmly smoking a cigarette. 
When I told him what had happened, he said he already knew. A lot of people had known that Carla and I were going to get it that day. Our asshole boss apparently bragged to them about what he was going to do before he did it. It got worse. We found out that he'd been planning to fire Carla from the day he arrived a couple of months before, going as far as to tell people he didn't want a woman working for him. So he was a series of lawsuits waiting to happen, in addition to stuffing the on-air staff with barely competent cronies and firing the rest of us. Instead of bringing out the potential in a radio station, as new bosses can sometimes do, he torched the place. I have met a lot of people in 40 years around radio, but I've only ever hated a couple of them. I've been told that guy's dead now. Good. I suspect that the wives and or husbands of many radio jocks live with an ongoing degree of low-level concern regarding what their spouses are saying about them on the air. Shortly after Ann and I got married, she wrote a check at a store, then apologized to the clerk for the low check number. She said she'd just changed her name and gotten new checks. The woman behind her in line must have peeked over Ann's shoulder and gotten her name because she piped up with, Oh, you must be Jim's wife. It sounds like you two had such a lovely honeymoon. But they get to bask in our celebrity, too, such as it is. We were having dinner one night in a little restaurant, the kind of place where you pay your tab at the bar register. I asked the bartender if she'd take a personal check, and she said yes. A barfly two stools down spoke up. If it's no good, we know where to find him. And where would that be, I asked. He said, you work at the radio station, right? That is, to my recollection, the only time I have ever been recognized by my voice alone. That's not as good as the guy I knew who once got a check cashed at a small-town bar in northern Wisconsin with no identification other than the sound of his voice. A corollary to this is that listeners inevitably form a mental picture of you based on the sound of your voice. I do it myself with people I listen to. So when a jock goes out to broadcast from a store or some community event... Listeners are often quite interested in matching a face to a voice. This was especially true in pre-internet days when people couldn't pull up your picture from the station website. Once I was doing an appearance when an elderly woman walked up to me, put her face in mine, squinted at me, and asked if I was the station's popular morning host. When I said I was not, she walked away without another word. Several years later in another town, I was doing an appearance when a listener came up and began to visit with me. Which one are you? he finally asked. When I told him my name, he said... I know you. And then he said, I thought you'd be shorter. People you meet at these appearances are usually pretty nice and sometimes a little bit starstruck. Occasionally they can be rude without meaning to be. They ask you for a prize and then for a different one when they don't like the prize you give them. Once a guy asked me, how much money do you make? I turned the question around and asked, how much do you think I make? When he named a figure that was more than double what I actually got, I just chuckled. If you have enjoyed this podcast, I hope you will visit my website, The Hits Just Keep On Coming, which you can easily find if you put that phrase into your favorite search engine. And if you have enjoyed this podcast, I hope you will consider coming back for another episode of it and listen to earlier episodes. You can find them at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, and Stitcher. You can also bookmark my SoundCloud or subscribe to my website to be notified about new episodes. If you're listening to this podcast on a platform where you can give it a like or a positive rating, I hope you'll do so. This is Jim Bartlett. Thanks for listening.